good evening, everybody. Great to see everybody here tonight. As always, thank you so very much for coming. Thank you for being here. And uh, it's always a, a highlight uh, to be here on Wednesday night. And uh, it's encouraging. It's fun. And uh, appreciate seeing all of you here tonight. And uh, we ask you to open your heart and uh, open your mind to the Word of God when we get to that in just a moment. Uh, we have quite a miraculous event happening here tonight as I speak. Um, there are no announcements to make. So there's a lot of people that ought to be just jubilant, excited here tonight because we are never complimented on announcements. I don't know that we have ever been complimented. Those were great announcements. And y'all did such a fine job. Nobody ever does that. So uh, enjoy this moment because I'm not sure how many more times it will come around in the next few days, weeks, and months. <clears throat> uh, glad you're here. I do want to take a moment to applaud, applaud two young members of our JV team. Uh, I want to uh, applaud Garrett Adams and uh, Joseph Watley. Brother Jonathan Adams was sick Sunday morning. Very unusual for him not to be here, but he left all the live stream responsibilities in good hands. These two young fellows took it from the beginning of the service all the way through the end and did a fantastic job by themselves. And I think that's wonderful. Let's give them some appreciation. Amen. Uh, I want to do a little review from our Bible study last Wednesday night. And, um, uh, and then we'll jump into our, our presentation for tonight. Before I do that, I would like to remind everyone that has, is interested and has signed up uh, to attend the class that I will start Sunday morning. Remember, that begins this coming Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. And uh, pastor doesn't wait. Um, I don't do the five more minutes and they'll be here. Uh, we'll start. And... Um, I encourage you to be here on time, and if any of you are attending, you know who you are. If you feel led to bring a dozen donuts, that would aid in a little extra fuel and anointing uh, for Sunday morning. And uh, we'll have some coffee, have a good time. If you arrive a little early, we can have some good fellowship, but the class will start promptly at 10 o'clock. Remember that. Uh, last Wednesday night, I introduced the second part of a little series that I uh, will be presenting here as long as the Lord leads. Uh, our purpose as a church, last Wednesday night was part two, and I did half of part two, so tonight I'm doing the other half of part two. So last Wednesday night you got part two, part one, and tonight you're going to get part two, part two. So uh, those of you that will put that on our church website, God bless you for figuring all of that out. <clears throat> Uh, but last Wednesday night, seriously, I talked to you about the fact that if, if we want to build a church, it has to be done by God's blueprint. Uh, it has to be done the way he wants to do it. And um, I talked to you about a, a very significant principle that the New Testament teaches, and that is absolute uh, apostolic agreement. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord. Um, it's a, if you remember the words, one accord is a unique Greek word. It's used six times to refer to the church. 
in the book of Acts. And it helps us understand the uniqueness of the community we have in the church. It's a compound of two words. It means to rush along and to be in unison. Uh, we talked about a little bit about that. Um, also illustrating the power of unity. I mentioned to you last Wednesday night that there are at least 47 commandments in the Bible that, that involves one another. Uh, staying in unity, staying in touch, that kind of thing. Uh, and these are commandments. And I listed to you, uh, gave you a list of a number of those. We moved on, uh, talked about the three principles of unity, uh, describing, first of all, what unity is not. Unity does not depend on uniformity. We talked about that. Unity does not depend on compromise. It does not. You don't have to water it down to get people unified. Um, unity and revival is depending on us uh, here actually in the U.S. and hopefully it can go all the way around the world. So let's begin our presentation tonight and uh, don't plan to keep you very long. But I want to begin with this illustration, with this question. How many of you ever remember being told to go tell your brother or sister you're sorry? I just had somebody praying. Just, just thinking about that caused them to break into travail and repentance and everything. Got an oh my Lord out of that one. How many of you have ever told your kids to go do that? Not very many. I'm kind of surprised. No, there's more hands shooting up. Um, there's people here tonight, I have no doubt in my mind, that you have told your kids to go tell each other I'm sorry. Have you ever noticed when you made that presentation to your kids or when it was made to you by your parents, uh, whoever was taking care of you at the time, whatever situation was, that they never included in that statement that if you go ask real nicely, I have faith that your sibling will forgive you. You were just told, I was told, to go tell your brother, in my case, that I was sorry. And I never heard anything in that request that said, it doesn't matter if you mean it or not. Just go say it. And so by saying it, in my mind, all I had to do was say it, whether I meant it or not, and it would just relieve the whole entire situation. But oftentimes, the command to go tell your brother I'm sorry was followed up with an adjunct and mean it. Well, now you've just ruined the whole thing. You just you added a component that it's uh, just not possible. You wanted me to say, be honest to say I'm sorry, and then you want me to lie about meaning it. And it just seems like one offsets the other, so there's no point in doing either one. So... Uh, that never won out for me, even though I reasoned that in my very young head. Uh, I still did what I was told and proclaimed that I meant it. But then got down to the real issue when all of that was over. Then I told God that I didn't mean it and I was really sorry for lying and I still hate my brother. So at least I got it straight with God some kind of way. Does anybody feel me here tonight? I want us to, I want to teach about a, a, another book of Acts, 
New Testament early church principle. And that was the apostolic altar call. When the people gathered around the upper room after the phenomenon of the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, and they felt convicted, of course, and they asked the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? I want everybody to hear tonight the reading of Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, and let me tell you what's not in it. Then Peter said unto them, Repent. And just stop right there. Peter said unto them, Repent. Has two meanings, as we know. One is asking for forgiveness of sin. The other is committing to God through repentance that you are turning away from those sins. So it's an about face. You, you do a 180. You turn away from those sins. What you don't hear, in my opinion, in this Peter answering their question in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, is any faith involved in it? I don't hear uh, a whole lot of instructions. Of course, John the Baptist had paved the way for repentance to be understood by the Jewish people, but I don't know how many, a lot of these people were from another country. They were Jews living in other countries, and they came back. And I just don't read where... Peter was presenting to them that this was a good idea, that this was a divine suggestion. They said, what shall we do? And he said, step number one, repent. I've been struggling with this this entire week, uh, thinking about opening tonight's service with this presentation. And I'm as guilty as, as any other preacher. But we've said often, and, and in the beginnings of an altar call, if you just have a little bit of faith, God will, God will forgive you. You come down here and repent. You come tell God you're sorry. And uh, if you have faith, you can receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. I don't see any of that content in this verse of Scripture. Now, I'm not going to split hairs with anybody. Yes, you have to have faith. But this is not a faith based presentation to those men gathered around the upper room. This is a commandment. You ask what do you need to do? Men and brethren, what must I do? The implication is to get rid of this conviction, this condemnation, this fear, all of these things on the inside of me. What do I need to do? And Peter said repent. Period. He didn't say it's a suggestion. He didn't say it'll make you feel good. He didn't say any of that through this being preached over and over and over and over, hundreds, thousands, even millions of times around the world in the past 100 years. Somehow or another, I believe we have altered the proper approach to the apostolic altar call and to base it on faith and if you'll just come try and uh, it's kind of like telling your sibling, I'm sorry, you don't have to really mean it. Uh, just come down here. Just get them down here and just do a boom and have them speak in tongues and bless God they got the Holy Ghost. I've learned through the years that people have come down. You don't have to come down here. Uh, when I say apostolic altar call, you can receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost anywhere. Uh, receive it at home, in your car. I know a lady that received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. I know her very well. Just about to deliver her third child. 
and uh, received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, actually waiting for a labor room in the hospital. They literally had put her in a closet because they were packed out with people having babies that night. And she received the Holy Ghost there. I know a man received the Holy Ghost under a pecan tree. Um, so when I say altar call, I'm talking about people obeying the plan that, of, of the gospel that the Bible submits here. My bottom line point that I'm making here tonight, as much as your parents or you've told your children as a parent to go repent to, go repent to your sibling, to your friend, whatever it is, that's not a suggestion. And it's not based on faith. It's a commandment. Go do this. And I've often wondered if we've dropped the ball as far as ministry is concerned, as far as preaching is concerned, and giving altar calls through the years, not properly implying the beautiful consequence that follows repentance. The Bible said in the book of Acts that God commands every man everywhere to repent. It's, it's not an option. If you want to be right with God, that's where it starts. I know it's impossible to please God without faith, but sooner or later, there has to be the obedience of some commandments. There has to be some things you have to obey. I've taught this year, uh, where did this verse of Scripture come from? Did Peter just pull it out of thin air? No, he did not. He obeyed what Jesus told him to say in Luke 24, Matthew 28, Mark 16, and Acts chapter 1. Uh, he obeyed what Jesus said. This is the content of what Jesus told him to preach and to teach the people to do. And it was based on obedience. Even when Jesus presented these commandments to the disciples in the 40 days that he appeared to them after his resurrection, it was not a faith-based thing. It was obedience. You obey this. Go ye into all the world baptizing them. That's a command. It's, it's something you do out of obedience. So the most important question that anyone can ever ask is the question first asked on the day of Pentecost. Men and brethren, what shall we do? And as sincere, as honest as those men were asking that question, they were coming to the apostles out of fear, conviction, condemnation, etc. Peter didn't play games in his answer. He answered them with the same intensity, the same passion, the same authority as he was presented with the question. And the most important answer anyone could give would be their response to that question. But also, people have to understand that this isn't God patty-caking around with people and when you get to it. If you want to go to heaven, it's going to begin with repentance. I'm teaching this tonight very passionately. I want everybody to understand, even when we witness to people, we have... I think it would be better, I think it would be advisable to change our tone, not to be pressure, not to try to cause a guilt trip, but you ask a question and I'm going to give you an answer. And I'm not going to hold back in my answer. I'm going to answer you emphatically. So what about the gospel that is being preached in most churches 
and in Christian literature today do is the question, men and brethren, what must we do? Is it being answered the same way it was in Acts chapter 2, which is the first time that question was asked, and it was only answered once. It wasn't answered in different ways over and over and over throughout the years. The answer, the, the question was asked once, the answer was given once. So does most churches do most does most Christian literature still answer that question the same way that Simon Peter answered that question in Acts chapter 2? We'll come to that in a minute. The word gospel is from the Anglo-Saxon word gospel, meaning God message or good story. We use the transliterated term, which is good news, in place of the Greek word, which is euagelion, and is usually think of it as only as the meaning only being good tidings. And I believe this is where people begin to deviate and to somehow water down. Um, it's not as emphatic. It doesn't come across as passionate, I believe, as it should. These are just good tidings. Just going to share with something with you that's just really sweet. I'm going to share something with you that's really kind. Peter said to repent. I don't believe that's the way it was presented. And I believe we've done people a disservice when we present it that way. So the gospel signifies not only the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which is the good news. It's a gospel according to Peter. But also our response and thanksgiving for such good tidings having come, and our response, our thanksgiving to the gospel message coming to us, the only proper way to appropriately respond to what Peter says is by obeying it. I hope that makes sense. Complimenting it and saying that is wonderful, but I'm not going to do it. Who was it that Paul was talking to in the book of Acts? And, and, and the man said that I will get my heart right with God in a more convenient season. I hear what you said. It's wonderful. It's nice. Thank you. I deeply appreciate it. But I'll come to it later and there's no record in the Bible that he ever did. The only way to really applaud and to understand the validity, the power to be thankful of what was said in Acts chapter 2 is by obeying it. That's the only option there is available to really telling God how much you love him, much like you appeased your parents when you went and apologized to your sibling. That's really the only way out of that situation is obeying it, obeying what you were told to do. <clears throat> so the most important part of preaching the gospel is the altar call. Tell me, preacher, tell me, child of God, what must I do? And how many people have left altars confused being told they were saved but coming short of 
obeying what Peter said. I don't read any example in the New Testament about people repeating a prayer and pronouncing them saved. And that's it. I don't read any example of that in the Bible. I've been asked that question a thousand times. And I can't, I, there's only one way I can answer it. Is I, I just have to go back to the Bible and say, I don't find any scriptural evidence or teaching. Peter answered the question, and it's never been answered any other way. So I want to go through these steps that Peter mentioned. And again, if you go back and watch the presentation I made earlier this year, on a Wednesday night about where Peter got this from. Uh, he got it directly from Jesus. Right directly from Jesus. Again, Matthew 28, Mark 16, um, Luke 24, Acts chapter 1, Jesus met with his disciples and he told them, this is what I want you to do. So <clears throat> the three steps of obedience to apply this to my title tonight is the apostolic altar call. The, the three steps of obedience again begins with repentance. Repentance is actually the first step with action. It's the first step with action. It, it, it involves that we, we take action. There's something we do. It's, it's the first action we take, if you will, toward the salvation process because we have a sinful nature and have committed sinful acts and it is essential that we repent and turn to God, and by turning to God, we turn away from sin. Isaiah 64, 6 says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we do all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Repentance is not just merely feeling sorry for your sin, although that is a part of it. In fact, this is godly sorrow, that causes us to repent. It's God's disappointment in us. It's God's sadness in us. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Repentance is biblically defined as a turning around or an about face, an inward change of attitude that leads to an outward change of direction that leads to an outward change of, of action. Unless both of these occur, then real repentance has not taken place. There has to be God forgiving and then a change in our lifestyle that's pleasing to God, pleasing to the Scripture, etc. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, to bring forth therefore fruits meet or acceptable for repentance. So when I repent, I'm applying literally the death of Christ to my life by making it effective to me. I'm dying out to my old life and I'm resurrecting in water baptism to a new life. Paul said this in Romans chapter 6, verse 6 and 7, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. So this is repentance. It could go on and on with it. But I believe you get the point tonight. Again, this is a commandment. The second thing 
that uh, Peter required in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, was water baptism. Repent and be baptized. Water baptism is indeed an outward physical act. And it's a part of our obedience to the terms of God's covenant that accomplishes an inner spiritual work on the inside of us. That, that is why in the Bible there's no such thing as a Christian who has not been baptized. Some people ask, do I have to be baptized? A good answer is no, you get to be baptized. That's a good answer. Yes, you have to. Repentance is a type of the death of Christ. Water baptism is a type of the burial of Christ. And Jesus asked if somehow or another he didn't have to go through this crucifixion process, which included him dying and being buried. If he was not exempted from that, how would we feel like we could be exempted from being baptized in water? I want to take a look at a list of some of the issues that are dealt with when an individual is baptized. I want to explain tonight why water baptism is so important. First of all, my sins are washed away or remitted, accomplishing God's full work of forgiveness. It's the first thing that happens in water baptism. Peter said to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. We all understand tonight and in, in, in the uh, lives of people who have had cancer. Oftentimes they'll go through surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, etc. And at some point down the road, the doctor will say, you are in remission. This means you had cancer, but you don't have it now. But there's always the possibility it can come back. So when you're baptized for the remission of sin, you were in sin. You were a sinner. When you're water baptized, all that is washed away. You're in remission, but there's always the possibility it can come back. Does everybody follow that logic? I think it's a simple way to understand it. But your sins are washed away or remitted. So in Acts 22, 16, uh, the question is asked, Why now tarriest thou arise, be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord? Your sins are washed away. But also in baptism, your conscience is washed and cleansed so I can be free from my past way of thinking. I don't have to think condemnatory anymore about myself. I don't feel that conviction anymore about myself. All of my past, all of it, all of it is washed away. I love the story. heard it years ago about a man that was baptized. And a week or so later, he was telling God in his prayer, I'm just so sorry about that thing I did five years ago that was so horrible, so sinful. And God responds to him and answers back and says, what thing? Because God forgets all of your past. You are a new creature in Christ Jesus. So your conscience is washed. Peter said this in 1 Peter 3.21. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but of the answer of a good conscience. Towards God, It takes care of all the old stuff, but it also gives you a good conscience towards God that when you lay down at night, you don't have to worry about not being saved or not. You don't have to worry about your sin still remaining or not. All of that is washed away, and you start out as a new person. The third thing is that my body is buried in a grave of water, portraying the death of my old life. 
Paul said in Colossians 2.12 that we are buried with him, Jesus, in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. So you, you go down in the water, one person, a sinful person, etc. Remember, in, in repentance, your sins are forgiven, but in baptism, they're washed away. So when that happens, you come up out of the water and you're a brand new creature in Christ Jesus in that all of your old sins all of your past life in the eyes of God are washed away and he never remembers it again. We're born again of the water, Jesus said in John chapter 3, uh, verse 5, portraying the birth of my new life. We understand that in the womb, we're in water in the womb inside of our mom. But when we're born, uh, that water breaks and the baby is born. The same, very similar principle in water baptism. You... You're brought from one place to another. You begin a new life when you're physically born. You can't live in the womb forever, obviously. You have to come out and begin your new life. The same is true in water baptism. You come up to begin a brand new life. So I am bought into God's covenant of New Testament salvation, portraying the cutting off of my fleshly desires. Paul again referenced that in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 in whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ baptized, uh, buried with him in baptism. The next thing that happens in water baptism is I take upon myself the name of Jesus Christ, which is the only saving name. Paul said in Galatians 3.27, For as many of you has been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Uh, the next thing that happens in water baptism is I apply the burial of Christ to my life, making it effective in me. Paul said in Romans 6, 4, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And that is after we are buried with him in baptism or by being baptized. The next thing that happens in water baptism is I demonstrate publicly that I am beginning a new life, committing myself to Christ and to his church family. In Acts chapter 2, 40, verse 41, the, the Bible said that they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. I find it very interesting that there were 3,000 that repented, were baptized in Jesus' name, filled the Holy Ghost uh, with the evidence of speaking other tongues on the day of Pentecost. Jesus established in the New Testament, and then it was also established in the Law of Moses, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. So it wasn't just three witnesses, it was three times 1,000. There were 3,000 people that witnessed that by obeying what Peter said for them to do, this is what happened to them. Wasn't just three people. Wasn't just 300. 300 would have been plenty. But God went way overboard, way overboard, and filling up 3,000 people on one day. Later on in the book of Acts, 5,000 received it, and then after that they didn't keep track of numbers anymore. It was thousands upon thousands of people. And I submit very kindly to this sweet congregation of people here tonight. I don't find anywhere else in the book of Acts where they deviated from what was presented to them in Acts chapter 2. 
So the more a believer studies the Bible, the more they find out about the miraculous events that happened back at that time of their salvation experience. And the small matter of saying yes to the terms of God's covenant leads to a lifetime of spiritual relationship and discovery. Much like the small matter that Colin Payton is going to do in just a few weeks. Just by saying two words. I do. And when they say that to each other, I think they're here. Uh, when they say that to each other, Peyton will be excited. What Cole don't realize is, is when he says, I do, he's done. <laughs> That's the fallout from that. But them two little words contain all the power, all the authority. It gives the pastor opportunity as a delegate literally of the state of Louisiana and the word of God to sign their marriage uh, license. They sign it. They get two witnesses to sign it and they are married. But it all began by them obeying the preacher when he said, do you do this? Do you do that? Do you do this? Do you do that? Do you agree this? Do you agree that? And they say, I do. Two words. It's interesting to me that the small matter of saying yes to what the Bible asks us to do, the power, the authority, and what it gives to us in future here, future on the other side, why would anybody want to argue with that? I would rather do what the Bible said than what a family member did, than what a friend did. I'd rather obey the Bible. Brother, obey the Bible. The third thing Peter said to do was to was talked about the Holy Ghost baptism. The baptism of the Holy Ghost provides power to help me live for God. It also brings me rest, brings me peace, it brings me joy. Isaiah said in Isaiah 28, 11, For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people, to whom he said, This is the rest wherewith you may cause the weary to, to rest. And this is the refreshing. In Romans 14, 17, Paul said the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's not food and beverages and what have you, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. So receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost, Jesus on the inside of you, it brings you rest, it brings you peace, it brings you joy. I can promise you if I, die, if I did not have my relationship with God based on this, I would not be here tonight. I can promise you that in a thousand different ways. I can promise you that. The second thing the Holy Ghost does, being filled with the Holy Ghost, is it helps you to pray. Paul said in Romans 8, 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. I've heard it more than one time. People in desperate places, desperate situations, will begin praying. And I've seen them sob. I've seen them cry. I've seen them pound their fist on the floor, on the wall. I've seen this all of my life. And they're praying with all of their might. Then all of a sudden they burst out speaking in tongues. And people say, well, that's great. Maybe, maybe not. I believe God, through His Spirit on the inside of them, allows them to begin praying in words they don't know what they are. But the English language falls short. 
of words that expresses their passion, their faith, their desires, and what have you. And they begin speaking in a heavenly language. This is the beauty of the baptism of the Holy Ghost, helping people pray. And I've heard it all of my life. I've seen it all of my life. And I've heard it discounted. That every time so-and-so prays, they just launch out into tongues. Well, you don't know what's going on in their life. You don't know what's going on in their heart. I realize that sometimes there can be wildfire and people do that to attract attention to themselves and we could go on and on. But when it's a sincere, hungry, desperate person, uh, I, I saw it here Sunday morning several times, that it just didn't seem like the English language was serving the needs of that individual and they broke into a heavenly tongue and it's just to me God's way of saying, let me help you pray a little bit. I'm going to empower you to pray in a language. You don't know what you're saying, but I understand every word of it. It's the beauty of the infilling of the Holy Ghost. Jude verse 20 says, But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. The next thing the Holy Ghost does is gives me power to witness to others about the Lord. We all know the verse in Acts 1.8, You shall receive power. It's dynamos. It's where we get the word dynamite from. It's, it's power. And people say, well, I don't always see the power of the Holy Ghost working. Well, you might have to move in with people to see it. You might have to go through them, go with them through their next trial. And when they bury their next loved one and when they've been diagnosed with an incurable disease, maybe you need to be with them. And you see them maintain their cool and they're they maintaining a good attitude and a good spirit. It's the power of the Holy Ghost that is with them. The Holy Ghost teaches me. Oh, yes, it does. It guides me. And it literally shows me things to come. Jesus promised in John 14, 26, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, He shall teach you all things. He shall teach you all things. The Holy Ghost on the inside of you. And bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I've said unto you. Jesus said in John 16, 13, How be it when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he shall show you these things. The baptism, the infilling of the Holy Ghost gives me power over the devil. It gives me power over the enemy. Isaiah said in Isaiah 59, 19, So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall raise up a standard or a flag against him that you've come in on property, on territory, you're not welcome. John said in his epistle, Ye are of God, little children. You have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The infilling of the Holy Ghost completes the work of salvation in my heart. Paul said in Romans 8, verse 9, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so that uh, be that Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, it's none of his. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Ghost. So it, it, it befalls us when we are um, presenting to someone, when we are answering their question, what must I do? that we are very careful and we answer them appropriately and we can certainly give them all these reasons. I do want to command tonight in the name of Jesus that we must always preach the truth in love. We must always teach the truth in love. 
It's not an axe. It's not a sledgehammer. It's not a, a wrecking ball. Um, you do it with truth. You do it with love, etc. But we still must preach and teach the truth. We do not love a person when we refuse to tell them about God's plan of salvation for fear of offending them. And I want to say to everyone here tonight, anyone and everyone is welcome to attend our church. However, merely attending church services does not always make someone into a Christian person, and we have learned that through the years. Again, if we're going to build God's church, and if we're going to be a part of God's church, it still has to be done God's way. I know there's, I used to have the number in my head. I know there's well over a thousand different denominations and religions around the world. It's probably three or four times that now. I'm not concerned about the denomination. I, I'm interested in what the Bible says. I, just doing what a denomination tells me to do, that don't work for me. I have to go home. I've told you the story many times. When I was about 18, 19 years old, my brother-in-law and I went home one night and said, what if our pastor is not teaching us the truth? And we got our Bibles down, and we went through the one God, the apostolic stuff, all that kind of stuff. And I've yet to find in the Bible any other way than, than what the Bible teaches. Um, I've heard people preach and teach that water baptism is not necessary. I don't find that in the Bible. No more than Jesus had an option on not being buried or not. I don't find sprinkling in the Bible. When Jesus was buried, he was put in a tomb. They didn't just sprinkle dirt on top of it. You, you have to be in alignment with the word of God. I could spend a lot of time on, on these examples and illustrations, but I believe all of us get the point. Folks, when we witness, when we share our experience with people, tell them what happened and do it with authority. This is what happened, and if it happened to me, it can happen to anybody. It can happen to you. I want everybody, I want everybody to enjoy and experience what I've experienced. I want to conclude with this point. I've yet to ever see anybody baptized in the name of Jesus or receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues that regretted it. I've challenged people. Why don't you try, genuinely, sincerely pursue the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and if you don't like it, tell God you don't like it and walk away. Just try it. Before you just systematically write it off, it's biblical. It's Oh, it's biblical. Oh, it's biblical. You're not getting anything crazy. Just try and see what happens. I know I'm crazy, but it's not because of the Holy Ghost. There's other extenuating circumstances that lead in that direction. And so are some of you. <laughs> but it's a great, great way to meet God, to have a relationship with God. Uh, I don't know of a way better. Thank the Lord. God bless you tonight. Thank you for your ears and listening to the word of God. Thank you for being here. We'll look forward to seeing you Sunday. And I'll come out expecting a great time in the Lord. And uh, we'll see what happens here Sunday morning. What do you say? God bless you. Great to see all of you tonight. You're dismissed in the beautiful name of Jesus.